He may have been America's most influential media mogul, the founder of a cable news network that transformed the country's political culture. The late Roger Ailes was unquestionably a pioneer, a scrappy striver from a small town in Ohio. He had an uncanny instinct for tapping into the angers, fears, and resentments of tens of millions of Americans, especially in what media elites like to call flyover country. After a successful career as a political strategist, helping to elect Republicans like Richard Nixon and George H.W. Bush, Ailes founded Fox News, a network that pledged to be fair and balanced, but in reality was anything but, serving as a vehicle for stars like Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity to relentlessly bash Democratic presidents and members of Congress. By the summer of 2016, Ailes was on the verge of his crowning achievement, helping to turn one of Fox's most reliable and polarizing guests, Donald J. Trump, into the Republican nominee for president. But at that very moment, a stunning downfall. Ailes was exposed as a serial sexual predator and abuser, forcing his corporate bosses at the Rupert Murdoch-owned 21st Century Fox Corporation to lock him out of his office. It's a dramatic Citizen Kane-like story, told with gripping detail in a new documentary being released today, Divide and Conquer, the story of Roger Ailes. It's our subject on this episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia say is a ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, this uh, Ailes documentary is really fascinating on so many levels. Uh, first of all, giving us real insight into who this guy is and how he became so influential and powerful. But also, I mean, his role in electing Donald Trump, getting him to where he is today, uh, very much a Ailes creation. And an avatar of skullduggery. And really, uh, you said this in the in the open, a Charles Foster Kane-like figure. I mean, this is a guy who was sinister and Machiavellian and later in life grew deeply paranoid, but he was also a visionary and he executed his vision brilliantly. But in the end, you know, that power corrupted him and he became this kind of megalomaniac and really kind of isolated in the end. And actually, just like Cain, his uh, demise came in, you know, in the middle of a, a sexual scandal. So right. he ends up a kind of sort of sad, lonely figure, N- not quite like Cain, isolated in Xanadu, muttering rose, <laughs> rosebud, you know, yeah. but it, it is, I think it's a really brilliant documentary. Um, and, you know, those parallels can be overwrought, but it's really, really worth watching. 
Okay, look, before we get to that, though, we got to do an update on where things stand in the Mueller investigation, the subject everybody's talking about this week. We are going to have a special skullduggery episode this weekend because as we are recording this, we are still waiting for these uh, memos that Mueller is due to file about two of his major witnesses, Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort. And a lot is going to be riding, I think, on what Mueller puts into these documents. But before we get there, let's talk about the one that has already been filed, and that's uh, Michael Flynn the guy who uh, Trump tapped to be his national security advisor and then was uh, forced to resign after uh, it was uh, exposed that he lied to the uh, vice president about his conversations with the Russian ambassador. Then, a year ago, he pleads guilty and agrees to cooperate with the Mueller investigation. This past week, Mueller filed his sentencing memo, long delayed, I think four times it had been put off, into uh, the sentence that Mueller believes Flynn should get for his cooperation. And to the surprise of many, including myself, he's not asking for any jail time at all. Yeah, which initially suggested to a lot of people that he had provided hugely significant information that could lead to, you know, Mueller really nailing Trump on collusion, right? And the other thing about Flynn is that we haven't heard anything from him since he began cooperating. There was nobody closer to Trump during the campaign. He had all these Russia ties. He had the relationship with Kislyak. He was talking to him during the transition. He took money from the Russians. That was one of your scoops during the campaign. He sat next to Vladimir Putin at a dinner in Moscow. The 10th anniversary dinner of RT, the Russian propaganda station, and Flynn, the former director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, flies over to Moscow to uh, join in the celebration, appear on stage for an interview, and then sit with uh, Putin next to Putin at this dinner. I, at the Republican convention, the very afternoon of his uh, before, just hours before his famous lock her up speech to the Republican convention and uh, grilled him on uh, how he came to be there and was he paid. And of course, he was not happy about that yeah, uh, line of questioning. Classic yeah. Isakoffian ambush. <laughs> right. But, but look, uh, I think that this the fact that he's been silent all this time raised expectations among a lot of people and, and Trump critics that he was going to have really significant information on Russia and possibly on collusion. And We've read this uh, sentencing statement over and over again. It doesn't seem to be there. Yeah, I don't. Look, and you, you go, yeah, right. go ahead. Yeah, I, I just sort of walk through because this is, in some ways, a Rorschach test for uh, everybody following this. There's a lot of redacted black lines, so you don't know what Mueller's saying. And uh, you know, those uh, you know people read things into those black lines that may or may not be there. But if we just focus on the words that are unredacted and are there, I think it's fairly interesting. The addendum to the government's memorandum in which they you know, laid out what 
Flynn had done, lied to the FBI about his conversations with Kislyak, lied to the FBI about um, his contacts over a uh, UN Security Council resolution regarding Israel. This was during the uh, Israeli settlements. This was during the transition. But then in the addendum, they talk about his substantial assistance to the government, but then they break it down and they reference his assistance in several ongoing investigations, but only one of them is the special counsel office's investigation concerning any links or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign. The first investigation they cite is a criminal investigation all blacked out, but it appears to be something being conducted by others in the Justice Department, a U.S. attorney's office or federal prosecutors, Mueller, something Mueller farmed out to others because it didn't fit within his mandate. And when they talk about Flynn's cooperation on that, they say he provided substantial assistance in that investigation. That is language for he gave up other people who we can now investigate and perhaps indict. Uh, that's the kind of language you use for a cooperator who's giving you other targets for the investigation. We don't know what that investigation is. There's some reporting today suggesting it's about an illegal lobbying operation by the Turkish government. Flynn was being paid through a uh, Dutch businessman over a half a million dollars by the government of Turkey. But when they get in the, in the Mueller addendum to the assistance that Flynn has provided in the actual special counsel investigation, they don't say substantial assistance. They say has also assisted with the investigation. And then there's a third matter that may or may not be tied to the Mueller probe. In that case, the addendum says he's provided useful information, something you know far short of substantial assistance. So I think what that tells me is we don't really know whether Flynn gave them anything that's going to lead to further indictments on collusion, coordination between the Kremlin and the Russian government. Well, let's go back to that mysterious investigation that's been redacted in the statement. The New York Times is reporting that that could be this Turkish lobbying operation that you mentioned. We, right. we have known that Flynn was paid a significant amount of money to represent the Turks, perhaps indirectly, but in trying to go after this Turkish cleric who the Turks believed instigated the coup in Turkey a while back. He wrote an op-ed piece in The Hill that I think ran, ran on, on election day. On, on election day. On election day. And so, and, you know, they have him. Of Erdogan's, you know, prime causes getting the Gulan guy rendered back to Turkey for criminal prosecution. This is the head of this religious cult who's living in Pennsylvania, who the Turks seem, uh, or at least the Erdogan government seems obsessed with. Right. So on the one hand, you know, that case clearly does not relate in any way to Russia and to collusion. The one thing that is the case that Mueller is referencing in the sentencing statement, the one thing I don't fully understand is why his cooperation in that case would be so significant that it would warrant him not getting any prison time, which is what Mueller's team is asking for, unless there are people who are much higher up bigger fish who were involved in that operation, because it seems like Flynn would have been 
a pretty big fish being you, you know would a think. Four, former three-star general <laughs> and and, yeah. and you know retired three-star general and the top national security advisor to Trump really nobody closer to Trump in the campaign other than his family if that is the case we're talking about it still raises some questions as to why he would be getting such a such leniency from the Mueller people so maybe there's something here that we don't know and will come out later yeah. And by the way, just on that point, you know, there was some speculation, well, Flynn was supposedly involved in discussions about actually kidnapping the, uh, the, the leader of the Gulen movement and bringing him back to Turkey. If that was really the case, you know, that would be a pretty serious criminal conspiracy. And one would expect that Flynn would have had to have pled guilty to that and gotten some prison time, even if he was diming out others who he was was either taking direction from or working with. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, a uh, recommendation of no prison time at all suggests that that's not the case and that th this isn't about something as serious as a criminal kidnapping. But look, there's also, you know, another part of the Mueller investigation that is the obstruction phase. And um, one would expect that Flynn's information would be crucial on that. After all, remember the president's query to James Comey after Flynn is fired. I hope you can see to let him go. The president trying to influence an FBI director about an ongoing investigation. And then, of course, Comey gets fired. And as we reported last year, Flynn stays in touch with the president and actually at one point in March of 2017 shows some colleagues that, or tells them about a message he had just gotten from the president, stay strong. Those were the words. That sounds like a message from that the president is saying is giving him in the context of the criminal investigation that could be an important part of any obstruction case that Mueller wants to bring. But of course, the only target in an obstruction investigation would be the president himself. And under DOJ policy, as we've talked before, he can't indict the president. What he can do is put it in a report that goes to the acting attorney general at this point, Matt Whitaker, what happens after that, whether Congress gets to see it. Certainly the Democrats in the House are going to push really hard to see it. But, you know, that may be where all this goes. The fact is, we are in the realm of speculation here because the memo doesn't shed any light on these rather critical questions. The one thing I, I do want to point out, and this is kind of a pattern since the beginning of uh, this podcast and, and all of these investigations um, into Trump and, and his campaign, the reaction to this sentencing statement that cable TV was hyperventilating. Uh, this is a huge right. deal. Everyone's going on and on about it. Uh, it may not end up being as significant as uh, people thought at first. But in the meantime, you know, it was only a few days ago, it was only last week, right, that we learned Donald Trump is involved in and his his advisors in negotiations with the Russian government to do a Trump Tower Moscow all the way up until the point that he cinched the Republican nomination. And now, you know, that story is kind of in the rearview mirror and has faded. Any other president that would have been a cataclysmic event uh, to, to find out that a nominee of a major party 
or soon-to-be nominee of a major party, was negotiating with one of the United States' biggest rivals, dangling dang, adversaries, adver- foreign power, absolutely da- <laughs> right. dangling. Yeah. According to BuzzFeed, a uh, yeah. what was it, a fifty million dollar penthouse apartment over yeah. Vladimir Putin? Yeah, you know it, it's just that was the brainchild of Felix Sater, Cohen's yeah. partner in crime. So and I just, I just think you we have to kind of keep repeating this. This this is a really big deal. This is this is evidence of American politicians, soon to be president, putting his financial interests over the United States security interests um, on behalf of a government that has done really terrible things, like probably murdered dozens of, of journalists. Putin has possibly, you know, had his own, you know, rivals, Boris Nemtsov, uh, Sergei Skripal, who we've talked about, the former Russian spy who was tracked down and poisoned in England. And it's just kind of mind boggling that those stories just kind of fade into the background because Trump is kind of graded on a curve because the, right. the, because of the number yeah. of, of outrages Trump's that sin. there are. Look, uh, really, like Trump's sin, uh, you know, the really egregious one is that all this was taking place during the campaign, was concealed from the voters. Uh, uh, Trump uh, uh, seriously misled the American public, not just during the campaign, but in all his comments after the election in which he said, you know, I have nothing to do with Russia. I have no investments in Russia may be technically true, but certainly highly misleading in light of what we learned about Michael Cohen. And I don't think it's going to be forgotten because I, you know, as as I mentioned before, we're going to see that Cohen sentencing memo. Yeah. Okay, uh, right, right, right. Speak, before we, and it may yeah. come back in that. Before right. we get to that, and I want you to talk about the two filings that are coming late this week and that we'll be talking about in our special edition that comes out on Saturday morning. I do want to make this point that last week on the show, we had Corey Lewandowski and Dave Bossie, yeah. uh, two of Trump's most loyal attack dogs. And when we brought up the Cohen allegations, uh, Cohen admitted that he lied to the Senate about the extent to which he had briefed the president on this Moscow Trump Tower deal and how long into the campaign it actually went. What do they do? They Well, they did what Trump did. But they said he's a liar. He lies about serial everything. Liar. He's, a, he's, a, liar. he's a serial liar. Well, just to correct the record here, the New York Times, after that revelation, I mean, they went to Trump's lawyer, to Rudy, outside lawyer Rudy Giuliani, and they asked the question that we were raising on the show. Well, Mueller certainly would have asked that question when he sent Trump the series of questions that the New York Times obtained. Was he briefed by Cohen on these negotiations? Did he know that these negotiations were going on into the summer of 2016? And Giuliani said basically what Michael Cohen testifies to aligned with Donald Trump's answers uh, to the special counsel. So I guess he wasn't lying. At least that's now what Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, said. Yeah, yes, exactly. And um, it's kind of like puts the lie to Lewandowski's claim that uh, that Cohen was a liar, at least uh, on this, uh, you know, pretty consequential matter. We're obviously going to learn a lot more. We hope we're going to learn a lot more very shortly. The other one that could be incredibly revealing is the filing in the Manafort case in which Mueller's team is expected to lay out 
what it is they believe Manafort lied to them about after agreeing to cooperate in the investigation. So, look, bottom line is, where are we in the Mueller probe? You know, I had a story on Yahoo this week suggesting that we are moving towards the end game, and uh, this, this could very shortly be the climax of the Mueller investigation. A lot of pushback on that. Some of my uh, colleagues in the media were dismissing it and saying, no, the Flynn memo and other matters suggest there's lots more for Mueller to do. We don't really know the answer to the question. I think we're all reading clues at this point, but we should have a better sense, I think, of where things stand after those two additional memos get filed, which is why we're going to do the special edition this weekend. So Skullduggery listeners, stay tuned and let's get back to our prime subject today, Roger Ailes. So I went into Roger's office and I said, I'm leaving. And he said, no, you're not. Nobody leaves. And I said, yeah, you know what? Before you say anything, can I just say something? Because I know how this is going to end here. So just let me say this to you. No matter what, thank you. I said, thank you for giving the conservatives a chance to have a voice. And, I, and he looked at me and his eyes welled up. And that meant something to him, that somebody actually saw it that way. I said to Roger, so what are you, what's next for you? He said, why are you still here? And he said, still have a, still have a president to pick. I still have a president to pick. Wow. That's a scene from the new documentary, Divide and Conquer, the story of Roger Ailes, made by our guest, Alexis Bloom. Alexis, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much for having me here. What a great name for a podcast. <laughs> Isakoff no, came up with it because no, he knows a thing or two about skullduggery. And no shortage in Washington, <laughs> especially these days. So this, your film, which is in theaters starting Friday. Yes, right? that's right. December 7th. Go out and see it. Um, an absolutely fascinating look at a guy who may have been the most powerful man in the media, Roger Ailes, who seems to even have had delusions that he was bigger than that, yeah. one of the most powerful men in the country. Tell us how you came to make this movie and why. We came to make this movie because it became sort of increasingly apparent that we live in Roger's world. Uh, you know, prior to the election of Trump, prior to even Gretchen Carlson launching her um, suit against Roger, so prior to the sexual harassment um, allegations, Alex Gibney and I were looking at doing a film in this sphere, whether it was Roger, whether it was Rupert Murdoch, it seemed to be a very unexplored kind of avenue. And um, he was a fascinating character himself on a more granular level, sort of as a psychological portrait, it would make a great film. So that it seemed, you know, it, it seemed a no brainer because he's important both on this big landscape level, how profoundly he's affected America and American politics and American culture, and also on this granular sort of Citizen Kane-like 
level. I was know? just going to say mm. the Citizen Kane analogy really came to me watching it. He is a citizen, a real life Citizen Kane figure, and your film sort of captures his rise, astonishing rise, yeah. and his very dramatic fall. In a kind of paranoia that you saw with Kane as well. I mean, it was really stunning. Yeah. Actually, I wanted to follow up on that because what I was thinking about as I was watching it was, was this a case of power corrupting and absolute power corrupting absolutely? Mm -hmm. Or did you see this when you were researching his life, going back to when he was a small child, did mm -hmm. you see seeds of this? Was there a rosebud moment that foretold the Roger Ailes that he would become? I mean, not to evade the question, but I think the two things can be true at the same time. I think power does corrupt, and you saw that influence on him. He, he became utterly corrupted and enabled and facilitated by just the bags of money and success and everything that he generated. But in his early life, he, he had demons. He, he was a hemophiliac, so I don't think he had an easy childhood. You know, in the 1950s, growing up in Warren, Ohio, there was no cure for hemophilia. They had treatments, but they were ineffective. I was fascinated yeah. by that. I did not know that he uh, suffered from hemophilia, mm. and it you wondered if that created a kind of apocalyptic world for him, that at any moment, if you were a hemophiliac, you can die. I mean, that's what his friends said about him. I mean, I'm not a psychologist and, I, you know, don't pretend. I think that's sort of dangerous ground. But if you go by what his friends said, they said that he was acutely aware of his own mortality. And his, he has a friend called Austin Pendleton, who's wonderful, sort of a character actor, well known on Broadway, you know, characterized by his kindness, very liberal, so a strange, you know, bedfellow for Roger Ailes to have. And uh, Austin says that there's a line in a streetcar named Desire where the opposite of death is desire. And Roger, you know, had these kind of deathly experiences and he desired mightily. Walk us through his career, because probably many of our listeners are probably maybe only fuzzily mm -hmm. uh, know yeah. who Roger Ailes is and yeah. why he was such an important figure. But, you know, starting from, you know, he, he grows up in Ohio, he becomes active in politics and TV mm -hmm. and eventually goes on to found and create Fox News. But just sort of walk us through um, yeah. the chronology. How, yeah. yeah. Sure. I mean, you know, so many people don't know who Roger Ailes is. I did a mm -hmm. previous film on Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds, mm -hmm. and it was gratifying to like, and people say, what are you working on, Carrie Fisher and Debbie? Oh, we love them. <laughs> and then, you know, with Roger Ailes, it was like, who? Mm -hmm. And then when they, you know, if they ever did clock who he was, it was like, oh, that guy for sexual harassment, right? And I was like, no, but he's so much more than that. <laughs> you know, he's a great American figure, great in inverted commas, you know, not... You know, in, in the original, in the true sense, great. yes, not morally great, but in the, you know, he was a significant American figure, grew up in Warren, Ohio. He died when he was 77 last year, in 2017. He was one of the youngest producers on the Mike Douglas show, which was a big entertainment variety chat show. Every star in America was on there. We sort of show, you know, share, you know, politicians like Richard Nixon, you know, Paul Newman, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, everyone. If you were anyone 
you you were on the Mike Douglas show at some point in your life, and he was one of the youngest producers there. He met Richard Nixon there, and and you know cornered him in the dressing room. So goes the story told by Roger. And you know, side note, he was prone to being you know, somewhat of a fabulous, so you have to take it with a little pinch of salt. <laughs> really? But, yes. Roger Ailes was not like 100% truthful at all times? <laughs> no, shock, <Right>. shocking. <laughs> but that's a key yeah. moment, right? I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. In, in some ways, his genius was seeing that American politicians and running people who were running for president, that they would need television to succeed. Right. He said to Richard Nixon, if you don't take television seriously, you're going to lose again. And, right. And yeah. of course, he lost in 1960, some might say, yeah. because of television. That the he famous sweat, debate yeah. with JFK. On, yeah. And JFK was, you know, gorgeous, composed and, you know, polished and looked like a leader. And Nixon looked like a fumbling nerd who, you know, was ill and profusely sweating. And, you know, it also shows that he was a, he was an opportunist. You know, he, he right, sensed he sees, his window. Say, he sees that opportunity. He never misses an opportunity. You know, he's canny. So he, he meets Richard Nixon. He tells him he needs a media advisor. He then becomes his media advisor. You know, very successful. Richard Nixon gets elected. He then leaves the world of entertainment and starts on the on a career on that nixon 68 campaign i well Mm. remember reading as a kid the book joe by joe mcginnis the selling of the president and roger ailes pops up quite prominently Mm -hmm. there as the guy who's advising nixon on his media strategy how to come across as sort of informal and spontaneous in what were actually highly scripted television uh commercials in which he's answering questions from the audience right yeah and also Um, you see the roots of his skills as a propagandist because he's studying the movies of lenny riefenstahl uh, the triumph of the will and and actually even mimicking the camera angles from from that movie when he's filming Nixon, right? Taking his cues from a Nazi propagandist. Nobody does it like the Germans. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, they were famous. You know, we studied Riefenstahl at journalism school, you know, in Berkeley, yeah. you know, in the 1990s. So that's, that stuff doesn't get old. You know, they were very, very good at it, not to be too controversial, but they were, you know, sort of the pioneers of that propagandistic film. They were, you know, conscious that the angle was everything, how to make, you know, a very stumpy kind of comedic looking person like Hitler look heroic. I mean, that was that was a challenge. So they had to have, you know, low camera angles where he looked taller than he was and extend mm. the camera like across his arm. So you saw like the length of his arm and then going from that, you know, the thousands of people who were gathered from, you know, around him. It was the seminal work and, and it, was imp- it was important to understanding how politicians could be made either better and grander or fail. All right, so in 68, Ailes helps elect Richard Nixon as president, Mm. and he becomes known as a political consultant uh, media advisor to Republican politicians. Yeah, he does, and he, you know, works on campaigns from the grassroots to the to the presidential office, you know, congressmen, senators, mayors, crisscrossing the country, you know, in our in our film, I think Felicia Sugarman, who worked at Ailes Communications, which was his kind of consulting firm, said they did 14 races in 14 days. I mean, he was one of the hardest workers out there. You know, he was hugely influential. Mitch McConnell, 
springs to mind. That because, surprised you know, me in the yeah. film. I didn't realize that he was the media advisor to. There's a great story in the, in the film where when he's leader. when he's he's like a state judge or municipal judge yeah. or something, and he's running for. Senate, I guess, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, they're filming this commercial on the lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell that story. They're filming a commercial on the lake. They're trying to make him look a bit more folksy than I think he naturally is. And he's in the fishing boat. <laughs> it's pretty tall line. order yeah. to make yeah. Mitch McConnell well, seem so, folksy. You know, yeah, you know, he likes a challenge. So then Roger puts the fish on the hook and then gives the line to Mitch McConnell. And Mitch McConnell sitting in the boat, actually with a rather dorky kind of hat on, um, Mitch McConnell, dorky. Yeah, and then uh, uh, they're they're filming him, and this little voice can be heard like, "Rog, what do I do now?" And, <laughs> and you can uh, use profanity on this podcast, <laughs> can by you? the way. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> and then Roger says, "You know, reel in the fucking fish, Mitch." <laughs> and he and he reels in the fish literally and metaphorically, and he's elected, and it's a huge upset. Nobody expected him to be elected, and he's you know forever grateful to to Ailes, and that's that's key. You know, he had all these people in his rolodex when he went to Fox. You know, he had incredibly deep roots in the in the Republican Party. All of the yeah. leadership owed. Yeah, George H. W. Bush. Well, we yeah. should you mention know, yeah. the eighty-eight yeah. campaign mm-hmm. and Willie Horton. Well, also, and you know, when when Roger died, George H. W. Bush tweeted. I didn't know he had a Twitter account, mm-hmm. but he tweeted, "I loved Roger. I would really? not have been president without him." Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, especially to hear this week. Yeah. Yeah. During the uh, all the Bush tributes, actually, now, and I think you make this clear in the film. You know, when people think of the Willie Horton ad and the uh, the depiction of Willie Horton, who does look like a truly scary fellow, mm-hmm. um, that wasn't the ad that Roger Ailes made, right? It's so duplicitous the whole thing because, you know. No, they could never pin the ad with the photograph on Roger. It was vintage Roger to deny that he did that advert with Willie Horton's mugshot on it. But he did many commercials with Willie Horton in it. And the people who did the uh, commercial with the mugshot were all of his closest colleagues and friends, Larry McCarthy, Lee Atwater. So it's like saying, you know, I didn't do it, but the guy sitting to my left did, you know, but but it wasn't me. It wasn't me. They were all the same cabal. And I find it, you know, beyond credulity that he didn't know about it. Right. So that's 88. He helps elect H.W. Uh, as president. And then in the 90s, he wants to get into the talk TV business and start something called America's Talking. Yeah, he wants to go back to entertainment. You've got to remember that, like, you know, he grew up as this hemophiliac watching TV. He was on the Mike Douglas show. He, he sort of he described politics as a detour. He's then, you know, reinvents himself as the head of this talk show channel, America's Talking. Gives himself his own show. He wanted to get uh, in front of the camera. I have to say, I love, I don't know, was that actually him tap dancing? No. Okay. (laughs) But he is, he he took tap dancing lessons. He did take tap dancing lessons, And he had that kind of, that sort of Broadway persona. Yes, he did. At least that ambition. Yeah, he did. He did. 
you know, and he, he launched the, the uh, network on the 4th of July. It was all American all the time, very upbeat, very positive. His sort of question of the day was always, what's America talking about today? And it was variety shows, pet shows, shows about sex, you know, but, but all very positive. You know, if Fox had a very chipper cousin, it would be that, you know, still the same kind of emphasis on America and being patriotic. Kind of populist, but not yes. divisive. Yes, exactly. Interesting. Yeah. And then in 1996, I believe it is. Yeah. Fox News. Fox News. So he gets sort of ousted from America's Talking because they sell it to Bill Gates and they he's not included in the boardroom discussions and he's irked. He's like right. mightily pissed off. Right. They say to him, you can carry on in your capacity as head of America's Talking, mm-hmm. but we want you to know that Bill Gates is now part of the equation. We're going to rebrand it as, as MSNBC. MSNBC. Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's going to be a bit more newsy. And since we can swear, I'll I'll just quote directly in case my mum is listening to this. I did not say these words myself. But Roger said, you know, to a friend, I'm going to fuck them. I'm going to fuck them like they've never been fucked before. Mm -hmm. And he literally storms out the building, never to be seen again. And a few months later, Fox News is born. And that's key in understanding the genesis of Fox, this level of personal animus yeah. that he has this towards NSP. This retaliatory, NSP's. vengeful streak that he has. Absolutely. Mm. And what was the idea of Fox News? I think provide a corrective to, you know, the mainstream media. In his mind, he thought that the mainstream media used to steer to, steered to the left, mm-hmm. and he had to steer it to the right. This is the question I had about mm-hmm. him. Did, did he identify, personally identify with the Fox News audience? And he tapped yeah. into deep reservoirs of kind of grievance among conservative Americans who felt marginalized or left out, working class Americans. Um, he comes from Warren, Ohio, a town that uh, I think changed a lot over the course of his life uh, economically. Yeah. Um, I wondered uh, yeah. how much of to what extent Ailes himself kind of uh, shared those personal, those grievances? I think he absolutely shared those grievances. Uh, he was very explicit in identifying with the audience. Now, there's always a bit of space between, you know, him and them in that he has become a multimillionaire. You know, like it or not. Not unlike you know, Donald Trump, yeah, he who has- also shares in those grievances in some respects. Yeah, so this sense of being a victim is somewhat fabricated, but he understands them in a way that, say, a Jeff Zucker from CNN would not understand them. He he is from that part of the country. He is from those people. Warren, Ohio had been an incredibly prosperous town, you know, very sort of civic minded. You know, it had the first incandescent streetlights in America. And it is now pretty much kind of an industrial ruin. It's, you know, unemployment is very high. And he he feels the lost America. And he feels that that kind of America is is under attack. And he thought that he was, you know, a general protecting America you know Fox was his army and he was a general and he was gonna protect America against further rot you make the case in the movie that you know this the creation of Fox News what Roger Ailes did 
certainly transformed uh, the American media, but also transformed our political culture. I think he made Flamethrower TV not only popular, but that's a, the pinnacle of, of what you want in sort of political exchange. Make it incendiary, make people watch, make it emotional, it's heat over light. Politics is entertainment. I, I don't think the left has kind of harnessed this in the same way, but certainly on the right, it's become about grievance, emotion, anger, retribution, and that kind of thing. I don't see substantive politics being discussed in the same way. And because it made more money for it to be gladiatorial on Fox. So in that clip we played at the top in which Glenn Beck, another, then a Fox News uh, star, is talking to Roger Ailes and Roger Ailes is telling him, I still have a president to pick. Mm. Who's he th- talking about? One can only wonder. (laughs) (laughs) I think you know the answer. (laughs) You've got to watch the movie. I'm not telling you. No, uh, it's Donald Trump. And he's got, he figures, you know, one more big race in him. He's 76 at the time. And the elections are coming up. And he despises the Clintons, absolutely despises them, and has done for decades. It's a real personal antipathy towards them. And he, you know, wants to control who's going to be the Republican candidate. Yeah. But there's, there's an obviously there's elements of hubris there that, that yeah. he's going to pick the president. Yeah. But, and I actually wanted to go back to this kind of megalomania that we see in him. And also the what I referred to before as the kind of retaliatory streak. There's a fascinating chapter in the movie about this small town in upstate New York where I guess he and his wife have a country house, um, Cold Spring, New York. And he buys the tiny little newspaper there, the Putnam County News and Recorder, and he just kind of muscles in on this town, which is, I guess, mostly a Democratic town. He's trying to turn it from blue to red. He's taking all of his tactics from Fox News and everything he learned in, you know, kind of hard-nosed politics to try to, you know, put in Republicans in the local government. Why did he need to do that? I mean, he was a, you know, kingmaker in national politics. He was getting presidents elected. What was the need to do this in a tiny town in upstate New York? I mean, again, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I just can't pretend to know what goes on inside him, but he did. But was that striking to you? It was incredibly striking. I mean, the, the man has every day filled with conflict in a professional capacity. And then he goes to his country house on the weekend and replicates that. It wasn't the money he spent there, and he did spend money, you know, buying the national, uh, buying the local paper, picking a candidate to run for local office, you know, giving that guy new clothes, putting up billboards, printing out pamphlets, but it's the energy. You know, it's the time and the energy down to bullying the local copy editor, hacking into her Facebook account. Why would you want to hack into the Facebook account of a perfectly pleasant copy editor who worked for you, who decided to leave? I mean, she had done nothing to him and he was consumed. I mean, pettiness, what you see at play is, is, is pettiness, is sort of control freakery. I don't think that that's a phrase, but it it is now. (laughs) And a desire to, you know, create the world in his image. 
So as long as we're talking about bullies and pettiness, let's go back to the relationship with Trump mm. and what that relationship was like and how Roger Ailes went about making Donald Trump president. Because you show in the movie, give us a real glimpse of the you know constant appearances of mm. Trump on Fox News, Fox and Friends. Explain the relationship. And was this all dictated by ails to his um, to his TV network put this guy on all the time nothing happened at Fox without Rogers say so and he knew about everything that happened so that's the first thing to understand Glenn Beck mm -hmm. says Roger Ailes was Fox and Fox was Roger Ailes and that's absolutely true Roger knew that when Donald Trump went on Fox News, there was a spike in ratings. He used to obsessively look at ratings. Alison Camerota says this, you know, ratings are done in 15 minute increments and Roger would know exactly when X guest went on. Did the ratings go up or did the ratings go down? Donald Trump had a weekly call in every Monday and the ratings went up. He was on every Fox show, every major show, Hannity, O'Reilly, Greta Van Susten, we show. You know, he went to uh, baseball matches with O'Reilly and um, Roger Ailes. He was deep in Fox. Roger enabled Donald Trump to pivot from, you know, garden variety fame, I'd say, apprentice fame and media mogul fame to political legitimacy. And that was, that's, that's, it doesn't take a genius to see that, you know, just, you know, for those of us who were not watching Fox at the time, we were surprised that Donald Trump announced his candidacy and it was taken somewhat seriously. But for, you know, viewers of Fox News, he had been opining about immigration, the economy, education, things like that for months, for years. And yet, even as Ailes is literally picking our next president as at that point, 2011, or 2000, well, all through that period, 2011 through 2015, early 2016, he's the most powerful media man in the world, probably, and yet he is a monster. And we've got some clips from some of the women who worked for him over the years. Once we got into his car, we were barely pulled away from Union Station, and he leaned over and said, you know, I can really help you. But if you want to play with the big boys, you have to lay with the big boys. I didn't realize the extent to which Roger really was a predator. He would have me get down on my knees and tell me, you know what you are, Laura. You're my whore. You're my sex glade. I will admit to, as woman after woman came forward, although I felt sorry for the women, at the same time I was like, He's done. It finally happened. He's done. And I was happy that it happened while he was alive. I think Rupert Murdoch is a disgusting human being. He allowed so many abuses to take place. And when Rupert went on television and said that what was going on at Fox News was flirting, nonsense, only Roger Ailes, I knew that I had to respond. Pretty powerful stuff. And I think you document in the movie there were dozens of women who had experiences like that with Roger Ailes. We don't know how many there were, to be honest. The behavior can be traced 
from the Mike Douglas show all the way through the very end of Fox. And it's numerous and it's transactional and some of it is sort of hair curling and some of it is very pedestrian and quid pro quo. It's clearly a behavior that he engaged in from his early 20s right to the end, despite him being sort of physically incapacitated, he was a serial abuser of women. How did he get away with it? Money, I'd say. Explain. I mean, you know, I think at first, if you look back at the 60s and the 70s, perhaps the, the culture was different there and women didn't come forward in the same way. And he didn't have the money that he had later on. So there's a variety of reasons why that kind of behavior could have been covered up or not noticed early on. Certainly at Fox, it was money. He was making a billion dollars a year plus. A billion? Yeah, I mean, he wasn't making personally, but the company was. Okay. Yeah, the company was. And nobody wanted to know. Rupert Murdoch explicitly said, don't look too closely in Roger's books. Don't, you know, um, don't scrutinize. He's making us money. Yes, he's a controversial character, but he's our man. So they enabled him. Roger appointed his own legal counsel, Diane Brandy. He had an incredibly loyal head of PR, Irina Briganti, both of whom are still there, by the way who, you know, quashed stories that were negative about Fox or planted stories that were slurs on people who were criticizing Fox. Um, Including slurs on some of the women. Correct, correct. Yeah, he he must have also, it sounds like he created a fairly fearful environment. Uh, He retaliated against women. He kept them from getting their jobs. There are people, someone in the movie is quoted as saying that I was believed or was told that he had the offices bugged so if you said anything critical or if you said that you were supported hillary clinton you would be fired so he surveillance uh, was a big deal to him he ruled with fear yes so i mean a combination i'd have to say fear you know like the best cult leaders you have fear and you have a bit of charm too you can't be you know kim jong-un kind of like marching about the place you have to be a bit more charismatic than that and people you know comment on his ability to be folksy and crack a joke and reach out to you. So tell us about his downfall, how he got caught and how he got booted out. Gretchen Carlson had been recording him. Gretchen Carlson's a very astute person. She was a Fox News host. She was a Fox News host. And um, her contract had not been renewed. But prior to this, she'd been recording him. And she launched a, a suit against him personally, not against Fox. Um, out of state in New Jersey. And they were going to, you know, Fox was going to investigate narrowly uh, what had happened. So interview like a very small group of people around Gretchen Carlson. This was the initial plan. And it could have been at that stage that nobody would have corroborated her story. It would have somehow been settled or you know, battled in court or, you know, would not have led to his ouster, that he could have successfully fought it off. However, the key moment comes when James and Lachlan Murdoch, who have never liked Roger Ailes in any way, shape or form, 
get the opportunity to broaden the investigation and bring in Paul Weiss. So the law firm, the law firm, yeah. And then they they sort of they start interviewing other people. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, who's been a defender of Roger Ailes, is on a plane, you know, coming back from Cannes or something with Jerry Hall, his new wife, and uh, is not available to make this decision at that time. So Rupert and, so sorry, Lachlan and James make the decision, and then they discuss it with him when he lands at Sun Valley, where they're all at a conference for big business machers. And um, they present it to him almost like a fait accompli. Well, you know, Paul Weiss is coming in, we're going to, you know, broaden it, and... You know, was the legal strategy um, that changed? Uh, and it just shows you, you know, kind of it's all really about the lawyers in the end. Uh, Megan Kelly does not defend uh, Roger Ailes. In fact, she says that she has her own stories, but this is all kind of behind the scenes. She has a channel to Lachlan Murdoch. And at that point, I think James and Lachlan get the opportunity to oust him. They have long wanted to get rid of him. They, uh, there's uh, stories I was told off the record about, you know, dinners for 12 people when they do some celebratory, you know, Fox dinner and it's all, you know, Rupert, James, Lachlan, Roger, the head of accounting, you know, the head of advertising, but sort of the core inner circle and nobody wants to sit next to Roger, you know, and there's this awkward, you know, um, seat shuffle because Roger eats like a pig and is vulgar <laughs> and nobody wants to sit next to him. Nobody really likes him and he's, and he's, you know, clearly paranoid. And I think that the, at, by that stage, they thought Fox could run well enough without him and the liability of Roger exceeds his value. I love the scene of, uh, I guess, his last day and his chauffeur is driving him up to the Fox News uh, headquarters in Midtown Manhattan, and they get the, the driver gets the notice, keep driving around the block. Yeah, and then and then they lock him out of the office. And he's locked out of the office. He can, the, the, the news network that he created He's sort of barred from even setting foot in. And Sarah Ellison, the who you interviewed from yeah, Vanity great. Fair, she says uh, they took him out like a drone strike. Yeah. It's perfect, and they yeah. did. And you know, there's like there's the family, and there's a gangster, and there's like the uber gangster, you know. And you know, the family wins. The Murdochs, the Mur you know, he's not a Murdoch. Right. How will he be remembered? Don't know. I mean, at the moment, he's better known for his sexual harassment than anything else. I don't think his legacy is going to be a glorious one. Uh, you know, ironically, least. it's about to be completely redefined because there are two enormous Hollywood projects coming down the pike. Right. So people will probably get him confused with Russell Crowe, who's about to play him, <laughs> and John Lithgow, who's about to play him for... You know, a new film by Jay Roach. Well, so. before any of our listeners see those, they should watch Alexis's uh, truly absorbing and important film, Divide and Conquer, the story of Roger Ailes. Alexis, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Thank you, Alexis. Thanks for having me, Skullduggery. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. And be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. Talk to you next week.